Paul writing to the church at Colossae on the supremacy of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of the fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things of earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and in which I, Paul, have become a servant. Great, thank you, Bill, very much indeed. So at the risk of repetition, I just want to try and underline where we're going in our preaching this autumn as we take this journey of hope. Uh, hope is obviously our big theme for 2018, and uh, we've been looking at people of hope, and we've had other aspects of hope earlier in the year, but now in the autumn we're on a journey of hope. We're using the book of Colossians to take us step by step through a journey of hope, and each step has a challenge attached to it. Now, we're mainly doing this in the mornings, so all of the steps will be covered in the mornings. Uh, there are some uh, intermissions, obviously. Last week was a bit different. Next week's harvest in uh, uh, October, there's uh, a world mission focus one, one week. In November, there's remembrance. So there are, there are various gaps. But in between those, we follow these steps in the mornings. And uh, because there's so much material here, there might from time to time be some evenings where we connect with it as well. That's what we're doing tonight, because uh, there was so much in this passage that I read in the first instance, we've read this morning, and that we've heard again this evening. It's also the passage in, uh, that some of you will have done in your home groups if you are starting the uh, recommended course for this autumn. You may have already looked at this passage, or you may be coming to it in the next week or two. Uh, the rest of the home group material kind of follows the same theme, but doesn't follow the same material as the sermons. And there's not a close connection there this time. But uh, we're all heading in the same way, both in home groups and church, as we take this journey of hope and step by step find how we can really be people who are living out the hope that God has given to us. So, uh, just to recap a little bit, if you were here this morning, 
uh, you'll know that tonight's sermon is closely linked, that this morning we focused especially on the end of the passage, verse 23, believing totally in Jesus and not shifting from the hope that we had in him. And uh, this evening we come to the earlier part of this same passage. And this is all in step two, which is to have complete confidence in Jesus all the time. A couple of weeks ago, Nick Carter in the morning spoke about step one, which was to live a life that is pleasing to Jesus. Now we're in step two, which is to have complete confidence in Jesus all the time. And so this morning I was speaking particularly about those things that might distract us and taking away from having that complete confidence and focus upon Jesus all the time. This evening, really building up a deeper picture of who this Jesus is, in whom we have such a confidence. One commentator on the passage has helpfully made the connection between the supremacy of Jesus and the sufficiency of Jesus. That he is supreme as a person, the firstborn over all creation. He's supreme in his power, that everything was made through him. He's supreme in the church as head of the body. And because all of this is true, he is sufficient as our saviour. And through him, we're brought into the family of God. And that's really the territory that I would like us to explore this evening. And actually, for me, this is a bit of a treat because it seems that um, in in the way in which we engage in ministry and preaching. Uh, we don't often have the time when we go step by step through a passage, phrase by phrase, and really unpack what it means. And we're doing a little bit of that tonight, which is uh, always a valuable exercise. But first, a bit of background. Many people think that underneath these verses, in the beginning of Colossians, there is uh, an ancient, the text of an older hymn, which has been adapted. Uh, there are one or two places in the New Testament where in some of Paul's letters, although he doesn't actually say, I am quoting a hymn or I'm using something that someone else has written, from the style of writing you get the impression that that is what is happening. Some of those are very obvious. Philippians 2, 5 to 11 would be one that stands out as uh, very much obvious. It's very poetic. It, it clearly has a life of its own. But uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is also thought to be something like that. But no one's uncovered the earlier script, so we can't prove it. But there's a density about the words, there's a depth in the language that makes it a very special part of the letter and makes you think that there is something special about these words, more so than the narrative kind of text that sits around it, though, of course, all of it is uh, equally inspired. There's also a little bit of a pattern in the words because uh, the repeated phrase really is he is or Jesus is. But in the original language, it's just simply he is. So verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Uh, verse 17, he is before all things. Verse 18, he is the head of the body. Uh, and so you get a little bit of a shape coming out from uh, these words. And this pattern emerges. So all I want to do this evening is take those words, unpack the pattern, uh, see what they mean, so that we capture a vision of the person in whom we are saying we need to have complete confidence. When we say, I believe in Jesus, what kind of Jesus do you believe in? Here's a passage that strengthens our understanding of who Jesus really is. 
So I hope it'll be not only straightforward to follow, but also inspiring, and certainly I, do, I enjoyed very much doing this. I was uh, so grateful that I was able to uh, work on this bit of text as well as what I said this morning. It would have felt to me a little bit unsatisfying if I could only do sort of half of the message. So it does fit together. So who is this Jesus? Well, first he's supreme in creation. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is supreme in creation. Now, of course, no one has seen God himself. The opening words of John's Gospel make that very clear, that uh, wonderful introduction to the Gospel about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word God was God, and so on. Uh, and into verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. And just as those opening words of John's Gospel speak of Jesus as the one who makes the Father known, we've got the same idea here. And indeed, Christianity, as it followed on from Judaism, gave a fresh emphasis to the invisibility of God. Judaism was a religion which believed in a, a, a sovereign God, a great God, and a God who was not, in the main, visible. And Christianity underlines that. No one has ever seen the Father. And yet also, Christianity says, God's presence and his glory is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. His nature is revealed in this one perfect life. It's not just that Jesus is like God. It's not just that Jesus brings a message from God, but that he is God in human life. The coming into visible expression of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. Not just the reflection of the invisible God. That word image can be misunderstood. But the expression of the invisible God. So Jesus brings to us all the characteristics that are within the Godhead. And that's a difficult concept. It's a particularly difficult concept for those who have grown up with different faiths to get a hold of. That Almighty God can be made visible in a person, and that person was Jesus Christ. But this is what these words say, that Jesus is supreme in creation. He is the image of the invisible God. No one else that's been created sits in the same place as Jesus. He is utterly unique. And then that he's the firstborn over all creation. That's the next phrase. Firstborn over all creation. That doesn't just mean that he was the first to be born. Indeed, as you read the story of Genesis, you would tend to think that Adam was the first named person to be born. It's not the first person to be born, but rather the agent through whom everyone is born. Every life emerges out of the life of Jesus. The next phrase gives the sense of this, that in him all things were created. And isn't it interesting that this goes on to say, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. What's that all about? 
that through the agency of Jesus Christ, the visible world and the invisible world came into being. What we see and what we do not see, that incorporates thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. In other words, it involves the material and the spiritual. And all things were created through him and for him. This is getting a bit mind-blowing now, isn't it? It's very important that the church at Colossae understood this. There were a number of things that might have been an influence for them to divert their focus from Jesus. And one was a separation of the material and spiritual. You call it dualism. That the spiritual is good, the material is bad. But this word is saying all things were created through Jesus. The material world and the spiritual world, there is no distinction. They belong together. And all were created through Jesus. And thrones and authorities and powers, whether that is perceived as supernatural powers, whether it's perceived as those who are given human authority, ultimately, everything comes under Jesus himself. That through Jesus, God has created both the material and the spiritual, the visible and the invisible, including powers rulers and authorities and then the next phrase all things created through him and for him appointed towards the future too that he is both the agent of creation and the goal of creation that everything's come through Jesus everything is heading for Jesus and that everything has been created for Christ is very important when we consider our place in the world today our concern for the environment, our care for the poor and the marginalized. Every person, every part of creation has been made through Jesus and for Jesus. This affects our theology, our understanding of God. It affects our politics as well and our understanding of people. Everyone has been created through Jesus and for Jesus. So there's immense value on the world that God has made and we need to be those who care about that environment and the people whom God has made. And when we turn our back on those who need our help, when we ignore the destruction of the planet through human selfishness and greed, we are grieving the heart of Jesus because it's all been made through him and for him. And if he's made it, and if it is for his ultimate purpose, then it grieves him when we are part of the destruction and the neglect and the suffering around us. So it's challenging when we really understand that this world is made through Jesus and for Jesus. He is supreme in creation. And that makes a huge difference to how we view the world and the life that we have. And then these words go on to say that Jesus is supreme in life. The next point at which the passage picks up the he is. It is there in verse 15, though many translations will put in the Son or Jesus Christ at that point. But then in verse 17, he is, again, same words. He is before all things. 
and in him all things hold together. He is supreme in life. He is not just the creator, but the sustainer of the world. It isn't that Jesus just came on the scene at the beginning to make it all happen, that he'll wake up at the end when every knee shall bow before him, and, and that he has no part in what's going on in between, not at all. He is supreme in the whole of life, the agent of creation, but also the sustainer of the world, holding everything together. Wisdom literature, uh, some of which, of course, is in our Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, but other uh, wisdom documents sit, of the same time sit outside of Scripture. Wisdom literature refers of Jesus to his head touching the heavens and his feet touching the earth. He holds all things together. He holds together the material and the spiritual. He holds heaven and earth together. He holds all time together. He holds all places together. No new cosmic force can take him by surprise. No power which arises since the beginning of creation can usurp the primary place of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, in the world that we have today, there are powers, there are authorities, humanly created or appointed, who will not acknowledge the sovereign control of Jesus. And in many ways in which our world is in a place where Jesus is not acknowledged as Lord. And, of course, we live with this dilemma of Jesus' supreme authority, but the freedom that he has given to mankind from the very beginning, and our power to choose to follow or to turn against, to acknowledge God or to ignore him. And thus we have a very mixed world in the present time. But it doesn't take away from the fact that Jesus is supreme in life. He sustains the world as we see it. And isn't it interesting that this passage, which is really just unfolding this amazing picture of Jesus, talks of him as supreme in creation, supreme in life, and then almost seamlessly goes on to talk about Jesus being the head of the body, supreme in the church. The church suddenly comes on to center stage. The next he is, in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. And so the church is not a sort of later add-on to the purposes of God, but sits right in the center of the purposes of Jesus Christ. And in explaining that in verse 18, again, there are a number of phrases. The first one is, he is the head of the body. Other passages in Paul's letters refer to the church as the body of Christ. But elsewhere, the focus is often on the interdependence of each part of the body. And you will know these passages very well. Uh, and the head and the hand and the feet and so on. And everyone needs each other. But here the focus is on the total dependence of every part of the body. On Christ, who is the head. If a body does not hold on to its head it will not survive. But actually, there is a real danger that the church does not see its primary focus as Jesus, who is Lord. And the church can develop a little bit of a momentum of its own and go rolling on. 
and you begin to say, where is the head? Where is the Lord? And we've witnessed that in history. And I think the danger is never far from us that that can happen. A danger that the church does not see the primacy of Jesus as its Lord and the key to its nourishment and growth. And that's why we keep coming back to the scriptures. We keep coming back to these fundamental things. Because actually we will grow and we will be effective when we're really focused on Jesus Christ. He is supreme in the church. He is head of the body. And the phrases roll on. He is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. The firstborn from among the dead. Or the firstborn of the resurrection. That just as he was firstborn in over all creation, that now he's firstborn in the resurrection. His creation led to the formation of the universe. His resurrection will lead to a great company of heaven. And also his resurrection leads to the new life of God's people today. The spirit is given because Jesus is risen from the dead. And so the fact that he is the first to rise from the dead, leading the way to that whole transformation of human life in heaven itself, this opens up another window into who Jesus really is. The head of the body, the church, and the firstborn of the resurrection. That's why when we encounter the sadness of death, we also celebrate the hope of resurrection with conviction because we know that Jesus himself has risen from the dead. He is the firstborn among the resurrection so that in everything, he might have the supremacy. In everything, he might have the supremacy. The intention is for Jesus to have supremacy in everything. It's quite an easy thing to say. And traditionally, some people have ended spoken prayers with words along these lines that, you know, we give all the praise and the glory to God. He is supreme. It's easy to actually get to that point in the songs that we sing, the prayers that we say, the worship that we offer, but actually to live it out, that Jesus is supreme in everything, is much more challenging. That's why it was important this morning that we thought about those things that can cause us to drift away a little bit from that central focus upon Jesus. And that's the heart of this second challenge in our steps of hope, to totally have total confidence in Jesus Christ and for that faith to be consistent and steady not shifting from the hope which is in you so Jesus is sufficient uh, Jesus is supreme rather in creation he's supreme in life he's supreme in the church it emerges out of that that because he is supreme in these ways he is also sufficient in our res uh, in our Redemption, and that's what the last two verses say. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things. And so again, a few phrases are unpacked here. The fullness of God in Jesus. We've already thought about that from earlier words. 
at a time when I was uh, first studying theology in Oxford, uh, there was a book that had just been published called The Myth of God Incarnate. And it was exploring the idea of pantheism, that all of creation was in some sense divine, and therefore Jesus was divine too, but he wasn't particularly different from everything else. But this passage does not say that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in everything, but that God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. There is a uniqueness of Jesus. And out of that comes the sufficiency of his redemption. The cross, of course, is essential. Through him to reconcile all things to himself, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Here the whole of the universe and the whole of history is brought together into one moment and one place when Jesus died on the cross. That's why we speak of Easter as pivotal in history. The time that leads up to it, the time that emerges from it. There's something unique for all time and for all places that was achieved in that moment when Jesus died and rose again. Pivotal for the whole of history. And these words have a great vision, don't they? that earth and heaven is reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Not just you and me reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, but earth and heaven reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, this is verse 20, the words in the text, not my words, through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The scope of that reconciliation stretches right across the world. It is indeed universal. Creation waiting for its liberation from bondage to decay. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 21. The whole idea of creation groaning and longing for that freedom to flourish in the way that God originally intended. And we too, longing for that day when we will be beyond the stress, the strain, the pains, the struggles of this world and able to truly know the liberation of God's final kingdom in heaven. And it all happens through the cross. There is no other way. Reconciliation is through the cross of Jesus Christ, making peace, peace with God, peace between heaven and earth through his blood shed on the cross. It is based on all of that concerning Jesus that we are called to continue in the faith and not to move from the hope held out in the gospel. Which is why, in a way, I would have liked to have preached that sermon this morning and then gone on to preach what I did say this morning. Because our commitment to stay firm and not to move from the hope held out in the gospel is not based on something flimsy. It is based on the magnificence of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. And it's because of all of this 
that we are called to continue in your faith. Verse 23, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So I hope there's something there that will have either rekindled or added to your understanding of Jesus, stretched a little bit further, and given you a little bit more confidence in the one person on whom our faith depends from beginning to end.